Welcome to the KRS Molecular Minute Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Shadi Nabhan. I am the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at KRS Life Sciences, the large research network that is composed of tens and tens of academic institutions, healthcare systems, and practices interested in precision oncology research, big data research, and in advancing precision oncology to improve the outcomes of all patients affected with cancer. It is October 2023, and it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I could not be happier and more privileged than hosting Dr. George Sledge, Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Keras Life Sciences. George is well known across the world as one of the gurus of medical oncology and specifically breast cancer oncology. I have gotten the privilege of knowing George for years since we both sat on the JAMA Oncology Editorial Board Committee, but I've known of him years before. I've read many of his papers, his research, his accomplishments, and working alongside him is a dream coming true. George has done so much to breast cancer research in advancing the field through clinical trials and through translational research. In addition, through collaborating with other investigators and other lab scientists and everyone else who is willing to help in advancing the care of patients with cancer. His ability to bring people together and get people to collaborate with each other to help patients in need is far to none. And he has applied this ability here at Keras as our chief medical officer, but he has done that before as a researcher, as a medical oncologist, as a treater, and as a humanist. And George is joining me on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast to talk a little bit about the history of breast cancer, where we were, where we are, and where we are heading. He's going to share with us a little bit about his career journey and what made him interested in breast cancer research. Before I air this episode, I got to remind you to rate this show, subscribe to it, and tell your friends and colleagues about it. I promise you, you're going to find something in some of these episodes that's going to be appealing to you, educational to you, your colleagues and friends. Without further ado, the one and only, the legend, the icon, Dr. George Sledge on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. We both know this is your first time on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast, so you need to play your cards right so I could invite you again. <laughs> Playing my cards right, does this involve, in, involve major gifts or, or what? <laughs> no, I mean, I'm open to bribes all the time. <laughs> Or do I just nearly, merely just need to perform well? <laughs> yes, yes, both, both, both. Oh, okay. Exclusive. I want to have folks who are listening know a lot about your career journey and 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 how you end up uh, obviously here at Paris and and how you got interested in breast cancer and and all of these details. So tell us a little bit about you. How did everything start and what got you interested in breast cancer? So when I started my fellowship, uh, the the head of my fellowship program was a guy named Bill McGuire. Bill was unique or certainly unusual among oncology program directors in that he was a board-certified endocrinologist and had never actually taken care of a cancer patient in his life. Uh, But what he was uh, at the time was perhaps one of the two, three, four 
greatest investigators on the planet in terms of estrogen receptor biology. And so a lot of what we do today in breast cancer comes from work that Bill and his colleagues did uh, in the 1970s and, and early 1980s. So, for instance, the reason that we measure progesterone receptor came out of Bill's laboratory, uh, where he was able to show that it was the, the first estrogen-regulated protein that you could measure in, the, in, in a laboratory, which, by the way, is why we measure, still measure PR today. So uh, I learned a lot about breast cancer from him. Uh, I spent two years in his laboratory uh, working on breast cancer problems. And then uh, when I left my fellowship program and moved to Indiana University, uh, which at the time was seeing more testicular cancer than any place on the planet, uh, I was asked whether or not I wanted to be general medical oncologist number five at the time. Uh, or whether or not I wanted to specialize. This was at a time, by the way, when most oncologists in academia were generalists. And so I said, well, I've spent a couple of years doing breast cancer research. I'd kind of like to be a breast cancer doctor. They said, fine. And so I built a breast cancer program uh, at IU, going from uh, basically the breast cancer program being myself and a mammographer uh, to eventually having around 30 folks. And then ultimately, of course, moving to Stanford to be to, to be division chief there. Uh, I, I came along at a really fortunate time because uh, we we saw during this period, which was the 80s and 90s, the the evolution of of, of a number of different trends in doc, in oncology. For much of that period, the major trend was a chemotherapy trend. And it was part of a broader thing that we saw in oncology, which was, you know, how much drug can, can we get in? How can we increase dose intensity? How many drugs can we add to a regimen? Uh, and of course, in breast cancer, as in lymphoma and other cancers, we would see these bizarre five or six drug regimens uh, that uh, always had a wonderful acronym attached to them. Uh, and then the ultimate, of course, was high-dose chemotherapy and autologous uh, bone marrow transplantation, autologous stem cell transplantation, where we said if we give a lot of drug, uh, we're going to accomplish something. So that was one major trend throughout much of this period. Uh, the other trend, uh, and these were sort of, if you will, families within the breast cancer world, the other trend, uh, which was typified by Bill McGuire and a few others, was to say, let's look at breast cancer from a biologic standpoint. If we understand the biology of the disease, ultimately we'll be able to do more uh, with it. And so initially that was estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor. In the late 80s, uh, Bill McGuire, uh, shortly after I left his group, working with Denny Slayman at UCLA, uh, did the first large study looking at HER2 uh, in breast cancer and showing that it was an important prognostic factor in breast cancer. Uh, and then, of course, in the 90s, we saw the uh, emergence both of new chemotherapeutics, and I did one. Of, I did the first large phase three trial of Taxol in breast cancer, uh, but also saw the emergence of novel biologics such as trastuzumab for HER2 positive breast cancer. So the field went from having very few tools to having lots of tools. By few tools, I mean few tools. In the first decade after I left my fellowship program, the FDA approved exactly zero new drugs for breast cancer. Hard to imagine now uh, in a period where we've already had four new drugs, four new indications in breast cancer this year alone. Now we've, uh, as a result, largely of the transition that occurred in the 80s and 90s in the direction of, of, of more biologic approaches, and at the same time, the failure of the chemotherapy school uh, in terms of 
increasing dose density, dose intensity, high dose chemotherapy, all of those turned out to be largely a bust. Uh, the end result has been uh, that we moved progressively in the direction of increasing use of, of biologically based therapies of breast cancer. And my career has had the good fortune to overlap with that. That's really amazing. There's a book there, George. I mean, I, yes, really. I think I think there is a, a lot of when you when you go through the process of, you know, throughout uh, you know several decades of therapy, uh, uh, you know, um, with a particular disease, you see the evolution. Um, but let, let's start. I mean, we talked a little bit about when you built a program at uh, at Indiana. How how challenging was this for you? I mean, this is amazing. You started with you and a mammographer, end up with thirty people. Yeah. Um, what what were the challenges in trying to build the program and trying to lobby for resources at a time probably that resources were constrained? Yeah, it was interesting. We uh, certainly the, the there wasn't the huge financial resources devoted to therapeutic therapy development in that day. Uh, I mean, everything was uh, at a smaller level, but some of the larger barriers actually were, in essence, were sort of personal ones. There was a large cohort of uh, surgeons, for instance, uh, who felt that modern breast conserving uh, surgery was was not appropriate for, for the treatment of patients. Uh, the One of the, the heads of surgery in my program, this was in the 1980s, said, I only do one one kind of breast cancer surgery, and that's mastectomy. Uh, this it's hard to imagine now, you know, because we're not we now live in an era where modern breast cancer surgery is defined by its desire to maintain an uh, you know an intact breast uh, to a huge degree. But there was a long tradition in surgery, uh, the Halstedian tradition, that you just basically had to extirpate everything locally if you were going to cure the patient. You know what? It was the result of uh, Bernie Fisher and 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 uh, the NSABP that we don't do that anymore. Uh, but this was up until the 1980s was a strong part of uh, people's approach to breast cancer. And and in our program and and in programs all over the country, you needed to overcome that innate conservatism uh, to provide patients the best care. I think you also, you know, as in as in any disease, you you needed to build up build a a cohort of folks who you could work with. Um, I'm not a great believer in the heroic school of oncology. I, I've always found that the best work gets done by 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 groups working together. Certainly in your field, that's always been the case as well. I, I had the good fortune to work with just some outstanding medical oncologists, uh, Kathy Miller, uh, who's now the uh, second in command at uh, at uh, Journal of Clinical Oncology uh, and uh, who uh, I had the good fortune to work with when I was ASCO president. She served as my uh, as my program committee chair, uh, an exceptional medical oncologist, uh, Brian Schneider, who's done outstanding pharmacogenomic work, uh, has just been exceptional. Uh, Anna Maria Storniolo, who developed the Komen Tissue Bank uh, at, at Indiana University, uh, which is a, a, a worldwide uh, gift in terms of biological studies. Uh, so working with, with just great folks has ju just allowed me to get a whole lot done uh, and certainly enrich in my career. So you are credited by saying at some point during an ASCO meeting when you were president that the biology has spoken. Yeah. And what I want you to talk about is, number one, 
when you are ASCO president, what what in the world does that mean for those who have no idea what an ASCO president does? Uh-huh. And number two, what led to that statement uh, that you um, you mentioned uh, during a large ASCO meeting with thousands and thousands of people yeah. watching and listening? So the, the, that that statement was a few years earlier, and it was at the 2005 ASCO meeting uh, where we had, saw the first presentation of adjuvant HER2 targeted therapy, and there were several trials that presented simultaneously. There was uh, the joint analysis of the two large North American trials, and then there was the large European trial. Basically, in the metastatic setting, we we knew at that point that HER2-targeted therapy gave a reasonable objective response rate, reasonable improvement in progression-free survival, improved overall survival by a few months, uh, by around five months in the, in, in the metastatic setting. But we didn't have any adjuvant data. And we had legitimate concerns going into that trial because we knew that HER2 could affect the heart. And so if you took a young woman and gave her HER2 targeted therapy, would you improve her uh, overall survival, her disease-free survival, and would you do it without damaging her heart uh, you know, for a lifetime? So we had multiple trials with, that were in retrospect overpowered trials. We made early decisions that turned out to be right, though I have no understanding why. And we chose a, a year of trastuzumab, for instance. Uh, as my old friend Hal Burstein said, it's uh, the scientific reason for choosing a year. And he said, and you could look, you can look this up, is that 365 days is the length of time it takes for the Earth to circle the sun. Uh, <laughs> but it worked out. Uh, anyways, uh, these trials all reported out far earlier than we thought they would. Um, they had p-values that beggared belief. Uh, uh, the the trial that I participated in had a p-value, I think it was of 10 to the 23rd uh, in, in terms of zeros. I mean, it was it, it was just you know immensely overpowered trial. Uh, we could have done the trial with half as many patients and still have gotten a wonderful uh, p-value. The European trials, you know, showed you know showed similar results, uh, and it, it it struck me because I was the discussant uh, for those trials, it struck me that we had actually reached an, an inflection point in our in our understanding of the biology of breast cancer and, and its application. And that inflection point was biology-based. And so the, the statement I'm, that I came up with for it is uh, biology has spoken and we should listen. I think that statement is generally true in oncology. You know, whenever biology speaks to you in a profound way, that should be the direction you go. The old days of just throwing spaghetti against the wall and hoping something would stick are are long past us for most cancers. And listening to biology is is what makes our lives and our patients' lives much better. It goes without saying it's probably transformed how we treat breast cancer in the adjuvant setting for uh, you know since then. And then several years back, yeah, I, I messed up the date. So several years after that, then no. you became the ASCO president. What 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 are these responsibilities? What does an ASCO president no. do? Because it's a one-year term for folks who yeah. are listening. It's a one-year term and in the minds of many of us, we think that one year is so tough to even accomplish much. So tell us what that means when you were a president. Yeah. So when you're when you're president, uh, uh, I guess for, for, first thing to say is that you're president for a year, but uh, at the time you were part of the leadership for three years. So you were president-elect, president, then president emeritus. Now it's actually four years because uh, there's a year of being president of the board and a year of, of being uh, 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 you know pr- uh, president uh, of uh, the meeting. 
so they decided that that work was too much for for uh, for one person uh first off it's an incredibly busy year uh, i think my uh my admin, uh, uh, Lisa, uh, told me that I had uh, left town on flights 39 times during the course uh, of that year. Do you, do, you, do you quit? Do you like go on a sabbatical for a year from your regular job, or do you do it in addition to your regular job? You do it in addition to your regular job. ASCO gives you partial support for salary. I, I for instance, basically stopped seeing new patients during that year, though I continued my clinics, and I tried to schedule things so that I would be out of town on a non-clinic day. Sometimes that works, sometimes it didn't. ASCO has a huge number of different uh, uh, committees. I think when I was there, there were 19 separate committees. Some of these are ones that I think are well-known to everyone, like the uh, Program Committee, the Education Committee, the Research Committee, and the like. But there, but, but there's a huge number of other committees that that uh, deal with other aspects of of the life of the society. The society has responsibilities uh, to private practitioners. Uh, it has responsibility to academicians. It has responsibilities to the public from an educational standpoint. Uh, it has responsibilities at a, at a national level. Uh, we, uh, as an organization, frequently would advise Congress on uh, matters pertaining to oncology and what, you know what we thought were best for patients. Uh, one of the more interesting things you do as an ASCO president is you go to Capi Capitol Hill and, and lobby for for research dollars. Uh, not for ASCO, but you know, but for the but for the larger academic community. So uh, all in all, it it, it in, ends up being a very busy year. I think many ASCO presidents, not all, but many ASCO presidents, also end up having a, a theme for the year uh, that translates uh, into uh, projects or or proposals that that the that the society endorses. Uh, my year, for instance, uh, we basically created CancerLink the year I was president. Uh, which is uh, still hanging around uh, uh, and uh, still probably hasn't quite met the promise we would ho we hoped for it at the time. Well, what is CancerLink uh, for those who don't know? So CancerLink is uh, you know started basically a decade ago now. Uh, the idea behind CancerLink was was that instead of just having a bunch of single institutions uh, that would uh, have their own data, that you would link together data across multiple institutions. Uh, and by doing so, you'd be able to get much larger amounts of data that you could use to address important questions, both from a research standpoint and from a practice standpoint. Uh, we actually created it in a pre-genomic era. Uh, and obviously, in, in a genomic era, having large consortia uh, uh, of investigators uh, and, and, and general clinicians who can work together allows you to answer lots of big and important questions. CancerLink uh, still exists uh, with ASCO. It's uh, it is uh, you know doing uh, doing good research at this point, research that overlaps significantly with what we do at Keras Life Sciences, yeah. uh, but which but, but which involves a, a broad array of, of clinicians, uh, largely from practices. And fast forward to several years later, you've been with Keras now for about a year. Uh, mm -hmm. and uh, for those of you who don't, well, we're going to tell people on the, who are listening what you do at Keras. So I don't want to steal your thunder, but I want to pivot from that into what you, how you believe the evolution of breast cancer therapy is. But you joined Keras about a year ago and uh, maybe describe to folks, aside from bossing me around, what else do you do at Keras? I know it's a full-time job to boss me around. I know that, but you know. 
Yes, uh, but I, I get through with lots of uh, psychoactive drugs. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I came to Karis for a real simple reason, uh, uh, other than just the sheer pleasure of the opportunity to work with, with you with yourself, Johnny. Uh, the organizations like Karis, and there are very few on this planet, sit on top of mounds of data, most of which have not been interrogated to any significant degree. Um, there's an old saying that uh, quantity has a quality all of its own. When, when you're an organization like Karis, you have not just the opportunity, but but I would add the responsibility to in, interrogate those large data sets and to come up with answers that are applicable to patients. And so working for an organization like like Keras for me is is being a pig in clover. I'm, 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 it's, it's a joyous occasion for me uh, to be able to look at data and try and come up uh, with with new answers. And of course, I think joyous for all of us. Uh, in in the medical affairs group, working through the POA to to work with our academic collaborators around the world uh, to come up with new answers uh, to important questions. So uh, for me, that's that is the promise of Keras. We do a lot of good on a day to day basis by providing doctors and patients answers in terms of what are the best treatments for their patients uh, based on next generation sequencing. Uh, but beyond that, at a larger level. Because we have so much data, we should be able to answer important questions about drug resistance, response, uh, biology of cancer, novel therapeutic, novel therapeutic approaches as we learn more and more about the disease. So that 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 is that is really wonderful. And I mean, um, George, I mean, the impact you have added to CARA since joining has been uh, amazing. So we're really very fortunate to have you. And I and I get the pleasure of working with you every day. And I, I and I can't say enough about that. I'd like you to put on your futuristic hat. I mean, you you've done you you've started. Probably at the time, I don't know, adjuvant therapy may have been CMF. I'm not putting out your age. Don't worry. Don't worry. I'm just saying. But at some point, at some point, CMF was adjuvant. Then we got AC, T, all of that stuff. And we've evolved into a completely different world in breast cancer, where I honestly think it's so confusing and complicated right now for the non-breast medical oncologist like myself. It's very confusing. Like I have, you know, to note negative, note positive, all of these things. But fast forward the next five years, where what is the promise in breast cancer management, whether it's adjuvant, whether it is metastatic, where do you see us going? I think the major change over the next few years, we're going to continue to get new medications. That's that's pretty much a given. You know, pharma is very good at coming up with new drugs for 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 new for new and sometimes for old targets. Uh, but increasingly we're going to be able to use molecular diagnostics to map in real time the evolution of human cancers. Uh, and perhaps all all the way across the spectrum uh, through the use of uh, liquid assays, such as our upcoming Keras Assure and, and other assays, we might be able to find cancers earlier than we'd be able to find them through standard screening uh, mechanisms and therefore, uh, you know, head them off at the pass and, and, and prevent them from turning into something dangerous to patients. For patients who have existing cancers, I think increasingly we're going to be able to to look at minimal residual disease find find early evidence of recurrence of the cancer, intervene therapeutically and and, and prevent uh, the development of, of, of recurrence. You know, we're in a far better place if we're pummeling a cancer when, when it's a, 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 ti- a tiny 90 pound weakling than, than, than it's when it's a two ton gorilla. 
minimal residual disease studies, I, I think, increasingly will help us. Next generation sequencing won't just find things early. It'll find what are the right things to treat. We'll be able to see the emergence of mutations. And this is not just in breast cancer, but across all cancers. And with the early emergence of specific mutations, we should be able to apply specific therapies to, pre to prevent progression. Uh, and then in the overt disease setting, uh, metastatic disease will continue to be a challenge in breast cancer and lots of other cancers. It may be too early to use the, the, the C word, the cure word for breast cancer. But even there, we're, you know, we're seeing hopeful signs uh, in the HER2 targeted therapy uh, setting for patients with metastatic disease. Uh, uh, HER2 targeted antibody drug conjugates now have patients who've gone into complete remission and remain there for several years. Some of those people may be cured. To the extent that we can in increase that run of, of, of using biologically targeted therapeutics, uh, perhaps attached to poisons in the form of ADCs, perhaps using more clever understandings and better drugs that will target the biology, maybe we'll get to a point sometime in the next few years where breast cancer will become a less frightening disease. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And I have to say, one of the things I'm excited about is some of the work that you have started several months back looking the possibility of um, can we actually have a better assay to predict more uh, patients with breast cancer who might not need chemotherapy Indeed. in the adjuvant setting, because uh, you know we all know in the adjuvant setting we are over treating some people to obviously cure fewer. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just the nature of adjuvant therapy. So if if we're able to come up with a way by saying you know what we're comfortable not giving you chemotherapy, we reduce burden of disease, burden of toxicity, and cost. Yeah, the be the best way to avoid. Uh toxicity is to not give someone something that they won't benefit from. Right. Uh, and that that's that was a tough lesson for the field to learn. Uh, listen, I, I date to an era where we didn't have good anti-nauseants uh, and where it was not at all unusual to treat a patient with a toxic chemotherapy regimen with minimal or modest benefit that would end them up in the hospital dehydrated uh, and puking their guts out. That era is pretty much passed, you know, as, as a result of better supportive care. Uh, and of course, things like Oncotype DX, have, you know, have reduced our reliance on on chemotherapy for a large proportion of early stage ER positive breast cancer patients. I think we're going to see those sorts of trends continue. Uh, hopefully, we'll get ever better in terms of controlling symptoms, but hopefully, we'll be able to reduce even the need to control the symptoms by virtue of eliminating patients uh, from from needing toxic therapies. Uh, and again, molecular diagnostics will lead the way here. Uh, you know, we, we will be able to learn more about both the cancer and the host and apply that to the treatment. Uh, and that that's going to change everything we do. It's amazing. I can talk to you for hours, but, uh, uh, you know, it's uh, I'm, I'm going to talk to you offline, convincing you that you have to write a book about the history of breast cancer. And uh, I, I think I think that, um, first of all, we're very fortunate to have you. And I appreciate you coming on the Molecular Minute podcast and spending some time especially in Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I think that when we look at the icons of breast cancer, not only in the U.S., but in the world, you are definitely one of them. And what you have done in breast cancer is something that's very difficult to summarize in, in a podcast. I just wanted to make sure we give a teaser to listeners so they can seek more. Well, you're very, you're very kind. I, I, you know, I, I've always felt like that I was, uh, 
more of a member of an army uh, than you know than than Achilles uh, out in front. Uh, so and you're the general. You're the general. We'll give you the general. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on, George Sledge, Dr. George Sledge, an icon in oncology and breast cancer on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Chetty. A, a pleasure. <laughs> Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening and thank you for being on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Don't forget to let me know what you think by emailing me at cnabhan at karisls.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate the show, and let your friends and colleagues know about it. Thank you to Dr. George Sledge for being my esteemed and honorable guest on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. And until next time, take care. 